Last week, we brought you the stories our listeners most engaged with. This week, it's our producer favorites. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. We produced our last original show on June 29th, after four years on the air, but we have a few more encore episodes to keep you going. And we're going to start with a story from May of last year, at a time when the news was dominated by debating health care and what might happen to the Affordable Care Act. Then and now, one very specific part of the health care system that is under tremendous strain is care at home. I'm talking about someone who helps an elderly, disabled, or recently hospitalized person get through their day, whether it's a bath, helping them take their meds, even eating. The kind of care that Tim Ortiz, a certified nursing assistant in North Carolina, provides. He's been working with people with disabilities for 10 years. He loves his job, but says... There's no prospect for me to continue doing this work and make any more money than I make, which is not very much. It's not enough to, you know, to live on my own or to um, have a family or anything like that. 13 million Americans got home care in the year 2000. The Centers for Disease Control says that will more than double by 2050. Even as agencies across the country are having trouble finding people to do this work, the average pay for a home health aide is about $10 an hour. Barbara Cano works as a home health aide, both for an agency, where she makes ten fifty an hour, and then at home for free with her 85-year-old father. She also took care of her mother, who died in January 2017. It's very emotional and rewarding at the same time, because I know my father needs me there. My mother needed me there as well. I have siblings, so they did help with my mother, and we share in the care for my father as well. I'm the eldest of nine, so I'm used to taking care of people. On the other hand, taking care of somebody that you're not related to is a little bit different. Try not to get the emotional ties, but it's hard not to as well. What do you think someone listening to us have this conversation might not understand about the kind of work that you do? That it is difficult. Some people think, oh, you take care of old people all day. They don't do anything. They just sit there. But you have to be constantly on your toes and aware because... Sometimes they move quickly and try and get up out of bed, or they're very confused and don't know what's going on. And we have to play it by ear. She'll ask me, what is today? Today's Saturday. Oh, good, I don't have to go to school today. So she's regressing. So she thinks she's in school. She asks me for her parents. And sometimes I don't know, do I tell her, well, your parents are no longer here. Your parents have passed. And I have told her at times, you know, your parents passed many years ago. You're 91 years old. And she'll say, no, that's not, that's not possible. It's not possible. I can't be. I want to call my mother. I want to talk to my father. So it's hard not to get emotionally involved with things like that. Does it ever make you angry or does it feel unfair that you're caring for someone in a moment of need and you are compensated at, say, you know, ten fifty an hour? It does, because I would think somebody's care and life would be worth more than that. Um, It's difficult. I'm on a very tight budget. I was working up to four years ago when I stopped working to take care of my parents, and I was earning a decent living. So I've had to adjust, and just to think that what we earn does really not compensate for what we do. But I've accepted that because it allows me to care for my father as well. What do you think is sort of the biggest issue that faces people who 
do the kind of work you do professionally? Probably that we're not compensated. It's almost like taking care of a baby, sometimes depending on the person's dementia and how advanced it is. But I just think about these athletes who get paid millions of dollars to do what they do, their God-given talent that they have. And sometimes they complain and they pout about not getting compensated for what they do. Well, I feel that as caregivers, we're not compensated for what we do. I work for this company, and I know it's a challenge for them as well because they have more and more clients. They can't even keep up with the demand sometimes of people wanting to do this work. People I know go and they apply for these jobs thinking, oh, I'm going to go take care of this little old lady or this little old man, and they don't last because they can't do it. When I first started with the client I have now, my first month there, she must have gone through 10 different caregivers who just couldn't handle it. Wow. It is a lot. Hours are long. I work 12-hour shifts on Sundays because really nobody wants to take those shifts. And it takes away from my personal things that I want to do with my family as well. Does all of this experience make you think about what's going to happen when you get older? It does. It does. And although I never thought it as a complaint to take care of my mother, and I know she would say, I'm sorry you have to take care of me. I'm sorry you have to do this. I said, it's okay, Mom. You know, you took care of all of us as children. It's okay. But on the same note, I wouldn't want anybody to have to take care of me that way. You know, I just hope that I'm healthy enough and hope that I wouldn't have to be in that same position. Barbara Cano, thank you so much. Thank you. You can read more about Barbara's experience and listen to an interview with Al Cardillo, Executive Vice President of the Home Care Association of New York State, about his testimony to lawmakers about the decline in home health aids and what it could mean for baby boomers. Find that conversation at Marketplace.org. We're going to stay with healthcare and listen back to a story from June of last year about the thousands of long-term care facilities in the United States. Many of them go unnoticed, but they play a big role in providing care. We sent our producer Eliza Mills to a pediatric skilled nursing facility in California to talk to the owners there. If you didn't know what to look for, you might drive right by Totally Kids Sun Valley Specialty Healthcare without noticing. Totally Kids Sun Valley is a small hospital in Sun Valley, a neighborhood 17 miles north of Los Angeles. It's tucked away in a residential neighborhood full of ranch-style homes and small farms. It shares a parking lot with a church. Down the street in one direction is an elementary school. In the other direction, a Chevron station. Michelle Nidem, who owns the hospital with her husband, Bob Nidem, says that Totally Kids Sun Valley and hospitals like it are almost invisible. I do think there's a layer that goes unseen, and I think that people want it to go unseen because it's hard to look at. I don't think we all want to think of ourselves as getting old and being in a SNF. SNF, as in skilled nursing facility, that includes nursing homes, rehab centers, and small hospitals like this one. I think that here, people don't want to think of their kids as being in a pediatric subacute. Subacute is basically one level down from the intensive care unit. Kids here need 24-hour care. It's easier to look away, and I think people want to look away. I think even being here, you want to look away sometimes. It's very painful. 
There are 45 children living at Totally Kids Sun Valley, ranging in age from a few months old to 21 years old. Patients are dealing with a wide range of medical issues. There are premature babies, kids who've been in near drownings or car accidents, victims of gun violence. The hospital has 220 skilled staff to provide care, and it's around the clock. Here's what it sounds like in a typical room of the hospital. Those are the machines that keep the kids here alive. Patients at Totally Kids Sun Valley use ventilators to breathe. They're also hooked up to pulse monitors, feeding tubes, and in some cases, dialysis machines. Running a small business in healthcare can be a challenge. Here's how the NIDAMs describe it. In a small business, it's obviously trying to run the business, make money so you can pay your staff well and provide good care. But it's also caring for the kids, emotionally caring for the kids, and sometimes It's an internal conflict to provide the quality of care and have a budget. We get paid through insurance, private insurance, and after a time, the insurance falls away and we are on Medi-Cal. We work with the very fragile kids, and so it's it's a balancing act at best. I always tell people who come in here, this is not a place that you want to visit, but if you need it, we are very good and we can help you? Well, we spend money on first and foremost as our staff. I mean, that's our most important resource. And so a majority of the funds are going right back into the people caring for the kids. In terms of the facility, we have to be up and running all the time since kids are on ventilators and respirators. This can never shut down. A lot of these facilities are a straight medical model. They're really meeting the kids' medical needs. And we're really on a whole person model. We want to make sure these kids have an entire entire circle of life. So we want them to have great leisure activities. We want them to have good rehab. You know, we want them to have a, a normal life as possible. The patient budget that comes from Medi-Cal is about 95% because in the state of California, we take private pay insurance. But after, it depends on your insurance, after 120 days or so, all private pay stops and it moves to Medi-Cal. I've been on and off surfing the net anxiously, really. And I was just looking at these statistics this morning that Medicare contributes to 64% of patients in skilled nursing facilities across the country. And they really want to cut back on that now. And over the next 10 years, it would go down significantly to where the, the burden would go even more in the states. And in a state like California, we're fortunate, but we use a lot of our own operating budget here in the state of California to fund Medi-Cal already. It's got to come from somewhere, and I don't know where that is. What would happen to a place like Tully Kids without Medi-Cal is it wouldn't exist. And so what happens is now you've got the kids that we take care of going back into the NICU or the ICU. And so what you've got then is a cost that's five times more than what it is here. You've got the NIC units, ICU units full. I don't know what they do with kids that really need high level of care. In addition, we're a community here. We've got families that come in. The families know each other. They build on relationships. And the families in our situation need a community to help just live through the the everyday life. What happens also, to build on what Michelle's saying, what happens to those 220 staff on another level is their relationships with those children. I mean, we have really loyal, dedicated staff, and I'd love to say it's us, but it's really the kids that they're dedicated and loyal to. 
And if they took away Medi-Cal, these facilities won't be around. That was Bob Nidum, along with his wife, Michelle Nidum, sharing their thoughts on what changes to health care policy could mean for their small facility just outside L.A. You can listen back to the many healthcare stories we've covered on Marketplace Weekend. Find them at Marketplace.org. Now a story about supply and demand, two of the most basic economic concepts. It's also a story about dogs, and it starts with mine, a wiggly seal-colored mutt named Mara, who originally came from Vidalia, Georgia. She was pulled from a county shelter with mange, a bloody face, very little fur. Local volunteers worked with a group where I live in Brooklyn, New York, to move her north where I adopted her. And Mara is not alone. An entire industry has sprung up, moving a supply of adoptable dogs from the rural south to cities in the north where there's a demand for them. To figure out why, my producer and I split up, and I went to rural Marion, North Carolina, to the supply. Come on in. All right. That's where I met Joy Harkelroad. She's got a shy smile and a blue minivan with a Who Rescued Who sticker on the back. I actually got a call while I was in church about what she's cradling in her arms wrapped in a towel. A little weak old puppy that was thrown away in a trash bag with her six siblings. Harkle Road sits with her friend Susan Menard in Menard's kitchen while three dogs run around at our feet and the puppy, whose eyes are still closed, sucks on my thumb. She constantly gets calls from sheriff's deputies, the trash guy, and an informal network of people who know she rescues dogs. So much so that Menard teases her. When's the last time you had a vacation? Um, last time you went somewhere overnight, anywhere. Many, many, many years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the reason why is that so many dogs need homes. I asked her why she thinks that is. Because there's no spay-neuter law, no leash law. And um, we, we've tried for years to get one. But every time we try... We get stopped, and it's usually by the hunters, you know, and they stop. They don't want any of these things instituted, and, you know, the county commissioners are, you know, they're not, they're not in agreement that we need a spay-neuter law. So I went to see Ashley Wooten. He's the McDowell County manager, and he says when the idea of a spay-and-neuter law comes up, yeah, hunters don't like it, and the North Carolina Sporting Dog Association told us they don't. Wooten says other people think it's government overreach, but also it's expensive. When you have the poverty level that we do in a working class community like we do, uh, it's harder for folks to say, "Okay, I'm going to go out and spend $300 for this whatever procedure that my dog needs or my cat or to spend $150 on a spay and neuter. Instead, they've focused on education, low-cost vet services, and bringing the euthanasia rate down at the county shelter. That also means that in McDowell County and across North Carolina, there's an entire network of people like Joy Harkelroad. At Rusty's Legacy, a volunteer rescue not too far away, there are 32 dogs in kennels. Some will live out their lives here, like Marshall, who was found hogtied in the woods. But I'm here to meet the dogs going north. 
I'm picking up animals that are going to Connecticut Humane Society to find their forever homes. Kelly Brown from yet another rescue group, Brother Wolf, loads four cream and white hound puppies, plus one brindle, into crates while Vicki Harper says goodbye. You have a new exciting life. Yes, you do. And I then follow Brown and these little ones, all of whom have names that start with Z, to the Brother Wolf building in Asheville, where they get a vet check and some shots. He's a boy. Say, I'm a little more dramatic than the girls. Aww. He's fine, really. Brother Wolf started transporting dogs north roughly a decade ago. This year, they've moved more than 650 dogs. And it costs about $200 per dog just to get them medically ready. That's before their crates are even put in the van. One more crate, one more dog. We will be all set. From here, we'll drive an hour and a half to Taylorsville, North Carolina, to meet Kelly Ivory. Yeah, there are a lot of Kellys in this story. Ivory has made a business out of transporting dogs. Hi, everybody! In Taylorsville, she collects the dogs from rescue groups all across the state and loads them into her van for a 13-hour trip to that new life in Connecticut. (laughs) We're going to be driving, and while one's driving, the other one's going to be sleeping, and... There's any messes in the back? Whoever's not driving is cleaning it up as it happens. My name is Kelly Ivory, and I run Howl on Wheels Transport. It is a transport for rescue dogs. Um, An average week for me could be 5,200 miles on a road with a load full of dogs. I was running a humane society and I seen the need to get some of these dogs out of this area. So I went ahead and got a van and decided that this is what I need to do. So here it is, an hour into the trip. We just stopped. We needed to grab something to drink. We've had some dogs that just didn't settle down at this point. We've had to clean a few crates, but we are ongoing. Bye, dear. Arms on or vertical? There's, there's not a lot of money making in transporting when you're looking at all the expenses you're putting out just to keep the vans on the road. Usually the receiving rescues will pay me. I usually say, okay, it's going to be a dollar per mile. This one's about a $1,600 run, um, and it's based off of the fuel, the payroll, the amount of maintenance. I mean, I'm averaging anywhere from eight to $1,600 a month just in maintenance. I make ends meet, but that's pretty much it. Okay, it is 1 a.m. in the morning. We have just stopped. We just got some fuel. I'm going to use the restroom, grab some snacks, clean any crates that need to be cleaned. Hi, baby. Who's a big baby? Look at you. Oh, yes, you did a mess in there. Hold on. You're soaked, girly. You're soaked. We have scheduled stops, so we, we will stop, we will walk a dog, we will clean up their kennels. Let's get some strong urine. So by the time that we arrive up in the north, you can open up that door and you don't typically smell anything. So here it is, 6.30 a.m. We're getting ready to cross over the Tappan Zee Bridge. We're hoping to get to the Connecticut Humane Society in time. I've been doing this in business for almost five years. There's definitely some competition out there. I've seen a huge 
increase on the amount of transporters that have opened businesses, especially the last couple of years. A lot of these dogs don't deserve what they've been dished out. If I can be that, that leg of transportation up to the north to help, then I'm going to do it. And when the dogs arrive, well, it's not quite over. Marketplace's Peter Balanon-Rosen picks up our story. He went to Newington, Connecticut to follow the dog's journey and explore why there's northern demand for southern dogs in the first place. Yep, this is a story of supply and demand after all. So before we get back to the puppies, let's talk about that. To walk us through, meet Gordon Willard. I'm the executive director here at the Connecticut Humane Society. Where the dogs from North Carolina have just arrived. Willard's been in this biz since 1983. Back then, across the Northeast... We were dealing with uh, surplus animals. We had oversupply and under-demand. Back then, the Connecticut Humane Society processed over 40,000 local animals each year. But then, in the mid-90s, something changed. All of a sudden, fewer homeless dogs which meant spaying and neutering was working. New rules across New England made owners sterilize their pets. But just as fewer dogs got to shelters, demand for them shot up. Why? Well, a few reasons. One, spay-neuter rules meant fewer people adopting out unwanted litters. Two, it also meant fewer strays. And three, purebred dogs and their puppy mill associations were not so cool anymore. And the word rescue took on a different connotation. Then Hurricane Katrina hit. In 2005, Northeast Humane Groups pooled resources to transport dogs from New Orleans. It showed them, whoa, we can bring dogs from other places, disaster or no. And by 2016, Connecticut organizations were bringing up about 20,000 animals a year from out of state. Today, about one in every 10 comes here to the Connecticut Humane Society. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Staff and volunteers get ready, putting on bright blue scrubs. I suit up, too. I get our gloves on, and then we'll start taking dogs off as soon as the vet comes. As soon as the vet comes. There's a whole process to this. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has 23 pages of regulations for how to handle and transport dogs. Inside the van, dogs wait. The unloading process, it's a choreography. One dog at a time. I meet this little rat terrier. She's white with pointy black ears, and her name's Abby. She's terrified. Pees herself as volunteer Steve Wilbert picks her up. They clean that up and take Abby for a walk. Little by little, you see the transformation. Abby goes from trembling to sniffing around the lawn. She even jumps at a tree. That's my girl. You ready to go in and take a look at the vet? Let's go. Let's turn her around, and we're going to just look at her knees and look at her skin. Vet Kaylin Machevsky examines every dog. She sees a strange spot on Abby. Machevsky examines her fur with a black light, looking for any bacteria or fungus. So anything weird will glow a green. She looks good. She does. Let's go, Abs. Abby heads to an area where transport dogs stay for 48 hours before joining other dogs up for adoption. Now, with all of this, there are costs. The medical exams down south, the transport, and this processing. Connecticut Humane Society foots the bill for all of it, and it adds up. Again, Director Gordon Willard. In economic terms, this is the most horrible business plan you could ever create. But in mission terms and in humane terms, this is exactly 
what our donors ask us to do. Can you put a dollar figure to how much you spend on each dog? About a net figure, we're looking about $900 subsidy per animal adopted. Adoption fees range from $100 for older dogs to $445 for puppies. Willard says the shelter stays open because of their donors, not money from adoptions. I popped down to the adoption area. It's loud. Irving Cologne came by with a friend. I'm thinking of getting a, a dog now that I just moved into the area. I know a lot of the, a lot of the animals they have here are rescues that are either from the area or from elsewhere. Is that something that, that's on your mind? They should all get a chance. Uh, I'm not too picky on, on their background and stuff like that. Staff say most of the transport dogs will be adopted out within the week. And they say when the year's through, like every year, they'll crunch the numbers, go through their books, and see if transport is something they plan to continue. I'm Peter Balanon-Rosen for Marketplace. This story was produced in partnership with Topic, a film, television, and digital studio. You can find a link to Topic's beautiful images for this story and their very cute subjects. Just go to marketplace.org. Our story of dog supply and demand aired back in December, some of you reached out with thoughts. You had plenty to say, plus lots of pics of your pups to share, which we loved. Erica Yerkes from Boston wrote us on Facebook. She says, it teaches us that we have a failed system, lack of education, and prolific poverty in this country. Instead of investing pennies for spay and neuter, we pay dollars to fill and staff shelters. Mary Colin Knapp from Winchester, Virginia added, to brand it as supply and demand, suggests that rescues in the North rely upon those in the South to supply product. I can't speak for the organizations I support, but I'm pretty sure it wouldn't break their hearts if the output significantly decreased. And more recently, Emily Liner tweeted, just wanted to let you know I taught the supply and demand of puppies to my econ class at Mississippi Governor's School this week. It was a fun twist on the typical intro-to-micro lesson inspired by your piece. You all have been a big part of our storytelling, offering local insights into national issues like infrastructure, trade, and the home health aid we heard about earlier. You can listen to more of the stories you contributed to over the past four years. Go to our website, marketplace.org. the last time you paid a visit to your local library? Because they are not just for books anymore, especially where millennials are concerned. According to a Pew Research study, just over half of millennials, 53%, used a physical library or bookmobile at least once in 2016. Other generations? Not so much. So what's drawing in younger adults? Yoga classes and beer brewing workshops certainly help. We checked in on a public library in Los Angeles with Tiffany Chow, manager of the El Camino Real Library in East L.A. We're having a concert, a summer concert today, um, with Dianza, which is a Latin artist, and we're hoping to get a lot of people. And I think the kids and the families and adults and everyone else that comes, is they're really going to enjoy it. May I have your attention, please? The end of summer concert with Dianza is about to start in about two minutes if you'd like to meet us in the meeting room. We chose Theanza because she's a Latin artist, and we try to always 
incorporate different cultures to introduce people to different cultures, but we wanted something familiar also. We're in East LA, and mostly it's about 98% Hispanic population. Um, I would say it's mostly um, low socioeconomic status. Hi, everyone. Thank you for coming to today's uh, concert. So please welcome me and welcome to Nianza. The library, so I feel like I gotta be like, are you guys doing? Okay, okay, all right, cool. So, uh, my name is Dianza. Thank you so much for hanging out with me. Um, I'm gonna play some music for you guys. Uh, this first song is called Vueltas. It's all funded through the LA County Arts Commission and then it's sponsored by our county supervisor, which is First District Supervisor Salto Solis. Personally, I wasn't introduced to like music or live theater until I was in high school. Um, and so I, I know that in this community, um, I kind of grew up in a community like this, so I wasn't really introduced to it. Um, and I just thought it would be great to introduce live music to them because they're, they're not always going to have an opportunity to have that. There's like a social justice aspect to librarianship, and I think that's really important, and I think that we're doing that every day in the libraries. When I first came to this library, um, there were programs only for children. I was like, oh, we need more programs for teens and more programs for adults. I mean, we're yes, we have a lot of children's books, but we're also here to support the needs of adults um, and teenagers. And I really wanted the community to understand that, that we're not just... We're just we're not just literacy pushers, I guess. Uh, we're not literacy pushers, and we're not just a building with books. We're a lot more. So we started computer classes, and then we also started loom knitting courses, um, which we thought would be great for the older customers. But it turns out it's a very great generational program because a lot of our kids are doing it also. So it's awesome because usually the adults are saying that about children's programs, like we want programs, and now it's switched. We just had a robotics day and we had like maybe 50 kids in there, 50 teens, tweens and teens, and a lot of parents were saying like, this is amazing, we didn't know the library had this. Um, We've had the LA Opera come in to perform their Zarzuela project, which is like Spanish opera. Um, We had a girl empowerment forum in December. The library is like the best place for people to learn about their new hobbies. So even today, like we're having a musical concert and we have a bunch of books on starting your own concert or learning about instruments. And I don't think you can get that like at a concert. You're not going to go and then find resources on everything you need to learn to do that. (laughs) That piece was produced by Paulina Velasco. Let's go to Cuba for a little bit. The U.S. lags behind Iceland, Rwanda, and Nicaragua when it comes to pay equity for women. That's according to a recent report from the World Economic Forum. In the U.S., on average, women earn about 80 cents for every dollar a man makes, according to the Department of Labor. Think about it like this. This is the sound of men's average pay, a metronome at 100 beats per minute. To get women's pay, on average, we changed that to 80 beats per minute. Why this happens comes down to a bunch of factors we'll look at today. First, some women just get paid less than men. 
for the same jobs, like what happened to Julie Fager. So the summer I graduated from high school, I got hired to be a lifeguard, and I was working for a company in Northern Virginia where I grew up, and then found out that if I got this license to be something called a pool operator, that I could get paid more per hour. You can actually work at a pool alone instead of having a pool that has like a separate manager. And I also loved working at a pool by myself because most of the time there weren't very many people there, which meant I could hang out and read and, you know, get a tan. Later on in the summer, and I guess it was probably in August to reward those of us who had stayed for most of the season, the company actually closed down all the pools and we had a lifeguard Olympics. And the team that I was on, we happened to win. And we were really good at treading water for, you know, 25 minutes and pretending to save people. And our prize was to get to go for a whole day to have a party on the owner of the company's boat on the Chesapeake Bay. For an 18-year-old, that's pretty epic I was talking to someone else who had the same job as me, who was a lifeguard, who was a pool operator, and it somehow came out that he was getting paid more. We had exactly the same experience, exactly the same license, and he was getting paid, you know, let's say $8 an hour, and I was getting paid $7.50. And that made me incredibly mad. You know, I grew up with, like, feminist activist parents, and, you know, I certainly knew that pay inequity was a thing, but I didn't expect that it was a thing in 1998. And so it was just like, oh, my God, this is still happening, and it's happened to me. I felt like I had to do something about it. So I did. I wrote a letter to the president of the company. You know, it was like a total charm offensive, you know, this very like, oh, I love working for this company, and it's so great. And I'm sure that it was an accident that this guy who has exactly the same job as me and exactly the same qualifications is getting paid more. And I'm sure that you as a, you know, modern, young, cool businessman would not want to have your business become known for engaging in in discriminatory behavior. Also being like, you don't want me to do anything more about this, right? <laughs> and, you know, and I and I proposed a solution. Like, I think what you should do is you should pay me for the extra 50 cents per hour that this other guy was getting paid for every single hour that I worked for the entire summer. And I thought, oh, he will never agree to that. You know, that'll be so much money he's going to say no. He wrote me back and said it was a really nice letter and agreed to give me the money in my last paycheck. So... For the bargain price of $250 in back pay, he made this situation go away. But I got the extra money, and I was going away for my first semester at college, so it made a big difference. And I went back and I worked there again the next summer, and my brother worked there, so, you know, we left on good terms. I'm 37 now, and if I could give advice to, you know, young men and women that are being lifeguards or whatever job they're doing... Find out what the service that you're providing is worth. It's the job of the employer to maximize their resources and to pay you as little as they can get away with. That's always going to be their their priority. And your priority should be not to work for any less than, than you can get. And talking to your coworkers about money, I mean, it's awkward, but it's the only power that you have in the workplace. Of course, it's not just summer jobs. The wage gap runs through and across different industries. Catherine Burheide studies it. She's a professor of sociology at Skidmore College, and she's also experienced it in her own life. 
I first realized it when I became department chair. And when that happens, you actually get to see the salaries in your department. And I discovered that I was actually making less money than my junior colleague. And I had had no idea. And what'd you do? As chair, you walk in and you have a conversation with the dean where you advocate for the salaries of your colleagues. And the dean, of course, took one look at where my salary was. And I got a very nice raise that year. I think he was felt guilty. Can, can you help us unravel a couple of things about the wage gap? Because there are these conversations that we seem to have over and over again about why women and men in the United States make different amounts of money. When we control for things like education um, and race, uh, what do we find? Well, the wage gap is complicated. And of course, the first thing people say is, well, it's because women or people of color have less education or they have less experience. That is, it's some non-discriminatory factor that explains the wage gap. And it certainly is true that you can find that those factors matter. But when you do statistical analyses that take that into account, you discover that, in fact, women and people of color continue on the average average to make less money than their white male counterparts do, even when you control for um, meritorious reasons for why someone might make more money than someone else. And so if you think of college faculty, we all have the same educational uh, backgrounds. Uh, There are so few people in that line of work who don't have PhDs that you've taken that explanatory factor off the Mm. table. And then you still see that there's a wage gap. How do we unpack the role of motherhood here? Because that, of course, is another argument. People say, well, women are more likely to take time off after having a child. Maybe they go out of the workforce. Um, What do we know from the data? There's something we call the motherhood penalty. And basically, we find that women who are mothers make less money than uh, women who are not, even controlling for their years out of the labor force. So Hmm. there's something that occurs when you're looking at two people and saying, well, this one has children. Uh, And she may be paying more attention to them than she is to her job. And therefore, we're going to give these opportunities to these other women who are going to not have uh, obligations outside of the workplace. And therefore, they're going to have the opportunity to excel and therefore get a raise. Family issues are another place where the U.S. has a lot of work to do. How does this shake out for different income brackets? Because I know that college-educated women, certainly right out of college, do pretty well compared to their male counterparts. And in some ways, the inverse can be true for folks without a college education. But how does this work both in different income brackets and then over time? Well, ironically, um, the wage gap is actually greatest at the top. Mm -hmm. Entry-level wage-setting practices are the ones that it's easiest to Uh, demonstrate some kind of discriminatory intent. So therefore, you're much less likely to have the big wage gaps at the starting level and at lower level jobs. That means, of course, that over time, a small difference will grow into a much larger one if nothing is done to intervene. Every employer, certainly every large employer, needs to do, as many of them do, a wage analysis every year so that they are looking to see that inequality um, has crept into their wage-setting practices. 
Catherine Burheide, a professor of sociology at Skidmore College. Thank you so much. You're welcome. The show has come to an end, but we're bringing you encore episodes with some of our favorite conversations. And every month, Allison Green from Ask a Manager answered your questions about workplace issues. Like this one, is it okay to wear shorts to the office? So if you have a dress code of any sort in your office, probably not. Even if your office is business casual, you can't really wear shorts in a professional environment. It's interesting because fashion magazines love to show these sort of businessy looking shorts that are made out of suit-like material. Yeah. But in real life, yeah, I don't know who's wearing them. In, in real life, it's highly unlikely that someone working in an office can get away with wearing those. Maybe if you worked in the fashion industry, but for the rest of us, it's pants, a dress, or a skirt, but no shorts. Here is a different story about shorts in the office from Karen Townsend. We had an intern show up one day wearing leather mini shorts and high heels. Her male boss was uncomfortable having the conversation with her, so I was nominated to discuss it. I called her into my office to tell her she couldn't wear shorts at all, certainly not shorts that short, and definitely not leather shorts either, and that she needed to go home to change, or if she preferred, she could just come back the next day. Instead of being embarrassed or awkward like I'd predicted, she instead argued with me, told me that it was a perfectly professional look, and asked why I even cared. Of course, then we had to talk about attitude. Okay, Allison, what do you do, especially if you're a manager, when somebody shows up in something that is uh, inappropriate? Yeah, if someone is way over the line, you have to say something. Really, the easiest way to ward it off is to have a clear dress code that spells out what is and isn't okay up front. I think it would be nice to assume that because we are all adults, you can trust people to use their own judgment and show up looking reasonably professional. But offices find over and over again that it's not the case. So if there are categories of things that you know you don't want people to show up wearing, put it in a clear policy so that everyone is on the same page and you can avoid a lot of awkward conversations. That said, even when you have that clear policy, some people are going to still violate it. If it happens, the best thing to do is be straightforward, be matter of fact. I think people tend to agonize over talking to people about dress because it feels so personal, like you're commenting on their fashion sense. But it's, and it's it can really feel okay sexist to, too. Yes, it really can, um, which is another reason why you want to have a pretty clear written policy to, to point to so that you're not stuck making a judgment call every time. Um, but if but if someone is clearly over the line, it's okay to just say, you know, hey, those are great shorts, but they're outside our dress code. Can you save it for the weekend? Okay, I think I know where you're going with this, but I, I, I want to play you one more question because this was something we just got so many questions about. All right, let's uh, hear this one about footwear from Karen Yen. For context... I work in Silicon Valley in my company's IT organization. Are flip-flops okay to wear to work ever? I'm not a fan, but see it on others all the time. All right, flip-flops. Flip-flops are probably the most hated clothing item I hear about. People are passionate about their dislike (laughs) of flip-flops at work. I think it's because the sound of the sound that they make when you walk in them. I will say I love flip-flops, but they're at the top of people's list of things that annoy them about workwear. And so I think you've got to consider them a strong no in general. That said, do some people wear them? Yes, at, at some offices people do. So it really comes down 
to what your office says about them. So with the caller, for instance, it sounds like they are okay in her organization. Annoying, maybe, but but it sounds like in that culture, they're okay. There is a class question that, that came to us that I find really interesting. Uh, this is from Alan McDougall, who, who was tweeting at us, and he said, when are we finally going to drop the whole ridiculous office attire charade that hurts lower-paid workers and makes so many uncomfortable? It's true. I mean, I will say that you can dress professionally on a pretty low budget if you check out like secondhand stores and consignment stores. Whether or not you should have to do that is is a question worth asking, I think. But a lot of businesses have dress codes because their customers respond better to it or they think their mm. customers will respond better to it. I mean, a lot of people don't want the person who's handling their taxes, for example, to show up in shorts and a T-shirt. And until that changes, I think we are stuck with dress codes. All right, Allison. So lay it out for us. Uh, what would you say are the three rules if you had to pick them for dressing in the office? The absolute biggest one is to know your office. Pay attention to any written policy. Pay attention to what colleagues are wearing. And in particular, pay attention to the colleagues who you admire. I think, too, if you're frustrated by dress codes, try seeing it as a sort of uniform. Find a few combinations that work for you. Um, and then three, I think don't listen to fashion magazines when they tell you what is appropriate workwear. They have a, a much more exotic idea of what you can wear to work than what real offices will have. I am an avid reader of your column, so I have to bring up – I'm just going to read the first line of it. <clears throat> So I bit a coworker yesterday. Obviously, I'm mortified. What? Wait, this yes. is real? You got a letter from a lady who bit somebody? I did. And actually, I mean, it's a fascinating letter for all kinds of reasons. But I think the biggest one is she's miserable in her job and she's working in a really unprofessional environment. And she's, it's sort of infected her. She's now stooping to the level of all her terrible coworkers to the point that she actually bit someone. And it's, <laughs> I mean, there's, there's so much to say about biting a coworker, but I think ultimately the, it's got to be a flag for her that she has to get out of that environment, that it's turning her into someone who bites colleagues. And that's not someone she wants to be. You can listen back to Allison Green's Workplace Advice. Just go to Marketplace.org and look for Ask a Manager. It's always nice to take a break from work if you can and visit other countries. Or why not make another country your place of work? As part of our series, How to Be a Blank, we hear more about life as a city tour guide in Barcelona, Spain. My name is Jonathan Lerner, and I'm the founder of Teller Tours Barcelona, and I live in Barcelona, Spain. Basically, I became a tour guide when I realized that I was in the country that I wanted to be in, which was Spain, but I wasn't doing what I wanted to be doing. I was working in real estate and had enough one day and returned to what my passion was, which is art and culture and history and, and people and stories. When I started guiding and kind of when I was learning the ropes, I was working with different friends and colleagues and kind of just learning as much as I can about the city as possible. And that was a great experience to learn the ropes because it really turned out to be kind of just like theater. You had 20 people just kind of staring at you. In the beginning, there was skepticism. They would look at you, you know, some levels of, of distrust or what's going what's gonna to happen on this tour. And after about 
10 or 15 minutes really like clockwork. You could see by using humor and, and history and connecting with the people, they're connecting within themselves. I think it takes, first of all, a lot of knowledge. So really understanding the pulse of the city, uh, understanding what people would love to, to see, to learn about, and to, to hear when they're in town. And then there's um, the human aspect, and that's what I love so much. Barcelona definitely is one of the most saturated tourism markets in Europe, if not the world. And so I started small and launched Taylor Tours Barcelona really just by word of mouth. And from there, it was growing and growing until a travel agent reached out. And, and little by little, you know, I was able to carve a space out in the city. We have tons of tours. A wonderful experience is kind of an introduction to the city. We call it the, the golden age of Barcelona. And we go through the Gothic Quarter, the historic center of the city. And we're going we're gonna to talk about 2,000 years of history from the Roman times up through the Gothic period and see some wonderful churches and squares and actually try to make a child or an adult even at the end of this time together fall in love with Gothic architecture. I know maybe that doesn't sound um, like the sexiest thing, but it's very possible. Giving tours in museums and Sagrada Familia every time I'm still humbled by the absolute beauty of the city, of the architecture, and of the cultural heritage that I'm able to, to share. So for me, at the end of those two hours or three hours or whatever it was, to see those people connecting is when really the magic happens. That was Jonathan Lerner, founder of Tailored Tours Barcelona. That piece was produced by Eliza Mills. And you can check out other How to Be a Blank and four years of archive material from Marketplace Weekend. Just go to marketplace.org. And that is it for Marketplace Weekend. The show is produced by Eliza Mills and Peter Bellinon-Rosen. Joanne Griffith is our executive producer. Ben Tolliday and Drew Jostad engineered this episode. Naren Rao composed our theme music. Evelyn LaRubia is Marketplace's executive editor. Deborah Clark is our senior vice president and general manager. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. This is APM.